You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Ryan Walters. He's a historian. He currently teaches history at Collin College in North Texas. He is a prolific, best-selling author. His books include Grover Cleveland, The Last Jeffersonian President, Apollo One, The Tragedy That Put Us on the Moon, and Ryan, I just bought that book and look forward to reading it. And the book we are talking about today, and that is The Jazz Age President, Defending Warren G. Harding. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Glad I confess book. that it. I confess in all of my studies and research and reading that I never considered reading a book on Warren Harding until I encountered yours. And quite frankly, I'm darn glad I did. It's a terrific book. And I appreciate that. And, and I've heard that a lot. That's the most common comment that I've gotten about the book is that people didn't know anything about Warren Harding and then they read my book. And I've even had people say, he's one of, I got to say, he's one of my favorite presidents now or something along those lines. And that was the whole reason I did it. That's why it was subtitled Defending Warren G. Harding, because he's been the subject of really a smear campaign over the last hundred years. And I wanted to give him his just, his just uh, rewards, I say, for doing a pretty good job in the presidency at a time when the country was in the midst of a lot of chaos and upheaval. And most people don't know that either. So there's just a lot about that time period that a lot of people just haven't read very much about. Ryan has appeared on C-SPAN and has written for several publications. He's also been on the History Unplugged podcast. And as you can tell from his accent, is from Back Bay, Boston. <laughs> 
Ryan, where are you from? Where did you get your education? And tell us a little bit about your developed love of history. As you said, I, I teach in North Texas. I've been living in Texas for about 10 years, but I'm not originally from Texas. I'm originally from South Mississippi. And I went to, I went to the University of Southern Mississippi down in Hattiesburg, if anybody knows where that is. And, and when I tell people that, they'll say, didn't Brett Favre go there? And I say, yeah, there, there's our claim to fame. So I moved to Texas about 10 years ago, and I've been teaching here and, and doing a lot of my writing here. And I plan on staying right here in the Lone Star State. So that's pretty much it. And I just, I'm a historian and, and all I do is, is teach and, and write. And I have a lot of projects in the future. So I'm going to continue on doing what I do. What's the first historical event, like big event you can remember? Uh, actually the election of 1980. Uh, I remember, I remember talking, I've always been interested in history and I've always been interested in political history. So a lot of my writing and, and everything, even my history classes that I teach, uh, at Collin College are uh, geared more towards political. And I remember talking to my dad about the, the 1980 presidential election between Carter and Reagan. And being just a little kid, I didn't really understand it, but I remember talking about it and being interested in it. And of course, I would always try to stay up and watch the results of presidential elections and other elections. And I did that in 1984 when Reagan was overwhelmingly re- reelected. My mother made me go to bed early and <laughs> I couldn't stay up and watch it. But I think I've, always, you, I've always been interested in those types of things. And of course, with my book on Apollo 1, the, uh, I always watched the space shuttles launch and, and land and when I was a little kid. And that's just, and I always like to go travel and go to battlefields or museums and stuff. That's always, I played sports, I played baseball and loved baseball. And but I was really, I was always a historian from the time I was a kid. And of course, my, my parents and grandparents nurtured that in me and took me places and, and we always talked about history. So uh, that's, that's just always something I've always wanted to do. The Apollo one tragedy when uh, it caught on fire hits us hard here in Indiana for obvious yep. reasons yep. as the yep. home of Gus Grissom, one of the original Mercury seven astronauts. Yeah, I, I did. I went to Mitchell. I was Mitchell two summers ago. I did a book signing there at the Grissom, the, mu- the museum there, where they've got the, the Gemini 3 capsule there mm-hmm. and everything. And I know uh, Gus Grissom's brother, Lowell, pretty well. And he was there and he and I have talked a lot and he really liked the book. And actually, I'm writing a biography now of Ed White, <clears throat> who was also killed. Oh, yeah. And Ed White's father and his family's from Indiana as well. They were from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Now, Ed White was born in, in, in San Antonio, Texas, because he was his father was a Air Force officer, but the family, the White family, actually came from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and were many generations in Fort Wayne. As, as a matter of fact, one of his one of his his great grandfather was a congressman from Indiana. Here we go. So there's an Indiana connection there for that for that book as well. We're everywhere, of course. Right. We Hoosiers. Ed White, the first American. Is he the first human, or just the first American to do an extra vehicular? walk activity yeah he was the first he was the first american to do it alexi Leonov beat us to the punch the russians did by a few months but ed white was the first american and he was an up-and-coming astronaut probably would have walked on the moon later on actually as i talk about in that book uh, gus grissom would probably have been the first man on the moon if apollo one had been successful there's a lot of evidence to that, that they wanted an original Mercury astronaut to be the first on the moon. And so Grissom, an, Indi- an Indiana guy, might have been the first man on the moon if it hadn't been for that tragedy. Awful. And the pictures are awful. 
all of it is awful. The recordings, everything that you can possibly yeah. research about Apollo one and what happened that day is beyond sad. Warren Harding. He is the regularly listed. And you mentioned this in your book. Every so often historians do their worst president, best president list. Warren Harding is usually listed at the bottom. I think consistently listed at the bottom. How, how, where would you put him and how fair or unfair has been President Harding's treatment by historians since his passing nearly 100 years ago? Yeah, you're exactly right. He's been on the bottom of more rankings than any other president. It's a battle between him and James Buchanan. Of course, the most recent C-SPAN poll had Harding at 37, so he's actually come up a little bit. And somebody asked me the other day, I was actually, I, I was in New York City. They invited me to the Union League Club to give a speech about Harding in the book. And and somebody asked me, why why is that? You think people are coming on to the fact that he was a much better president than they think? And I said, no, I think our most, so many of our presidents since Harding have been just downright terrible. It's boosted him up. <laughs> it's been so bad, which got a little bit of a chuckle. I hope with my book and some others out there that maybe he can come up a little bit because he has been on the bottom. Now, now we'll concede this. I like Warren Harding. He'd be in my personal top five because he's just the type of president that, that I, I agree with in a lot of ways, not just his policy, but the way he conducted himself in the presidency administratively, the way he viewed the office, I think is is more consistent with what the founding fathers had in mind. Now, I will concede he's not going to be on Mount Rushmore, no matter what we do for his reputation. But I don't think he deserves to be in the bottom. But even at 37th, has him in the bottom 10, which is considered a failed presidency. And when you look at what he accomplished in a little less than 900 days in office because he passed away, he's got a pretty phenomenal record. And when you consider the fact that the country was in bad shape, and that's one thing historians deny him. And I've given several speeches. And over the last year or so, putting Harding in the proper context. When you look at the events in 1919 and 1920 and the, the violence and the upheaval and the chaos and the economic depression and all the things that had hit the country, and even Woodrow Wilson's own people said, this country's in a mess, and it wasn't a mess. And Harding got a lot of that straightened out, and we get to the Roaring Twenties and all the fun things that happened in the Roaring Twenties economically and other things. So he just doesn't get a lot of credit. And, I, and, and historians, and it's not that they don't know the sources, they do. A lot of them just choose to ignore good, solid primary sources that are out there. So much of what's said about Harding is just, it's just been repeated over the last hundred years since his death. And so much of it's myth. There's no, there's no basis for any of it. A lot of it's political attacks from when he was an office and people just run with him over a hundred years and they just don't even cite any sources anymore to, to try to back up their claims because there's not any sources and sources that refute what they think about Harding. They don't use, they just simply ignore. So you can call me a historical revisionist all you want to, but my position is who's the real revisionist here. Somebody like me that uses all the sources to tell the true story or somebody that ignores sources to slam it. I don't care about their label, try to get to the real truth with, good, solid primary sources, which is what a historian is supposed to do. 
presidents tend to go up and down at the core, maybe five or six, never change on the list. Lincoln, Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, those they're almost always the top five one way or the other. But along with Harding, Ulysses S. Grant's presidential terms have gotten a recent reappraisal up. While at the same time, former much, much touted, much heralded presidents like Andrew Jackson and Woodrow Wilson have seen their reputations suffer. As a historian, is it important to you or important to the discipline to always look and reevaluate people and their impact and, and how much they did and how they did it for Americans, for United States history? I think you have to be careful with that. Obviously, and again, people hate the term historical revisionist. It's, it's become like a smear word for historians to label somebody a revisionist. Frank's up there with conspiracy theory and theorist, <laughs> or probably now an insurrection. You don't want to get labeled any of that. And I don't understand that. I've always viewed it more like science. Science is always changing. There's nothing settled about science. If science was settled, we'd still believe the earth was the center of the universe. Things are always changing. And but you have to be careful with it because it, if you're not careful, you'll get into what we call presentism, like the present right. tense, presentism. Mm -hmm. And you're using modern day beliefs to judge past generations. And, and I try to tell my students this all the time in class is that people at 200 years ago or 100 years ago didn't think like you think today. And you know what? 100 years from now, they're not going to think like we think. And 100 or 200 years from now, they're going to look back at us and say, my, we're a bunch of crazy people. Those people were. <laughs> so uh, would you like to be judged that way? So I think you have to be careful not to get into presentism and try to judge past generations because you have to put things in their context and look at it from that standpoint. And that's, that gets emotional and that gets a little more difficult sometimes and causes a lot of arguments. And historians, we argue about it all the time. But I try to put things in their context and take into account of the way of the time period that these people lived. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Professor Ryan Walters. We were discussing his book, The Jazz Age President, Defending Warren G. Harding. So tell us a little bit about Harding. We go through his administration. How did he get to be president? Kind of what was his background? What was the 1920 election like? These are big questions, right? But right. <laughs> 1920, 1920 is not really seen as a watershed election in American history, but should it be? I like to call it the Battle of Ohio uh, because it pitted Warren Harding, who was a U.S. senator from Ohio, and the Democratic nominee was the governor of Ohio, James Cox. And both of them were journalists. Both of them owned newspapers. It's the only time we've ever had that. Harding was, of course, the first journalist newspaper owner to ever be elected president. And, of course, Cox owned two news. Town guy from Marion, Ohio was not what we might say today, a privileged individual. He went to a small college and he wasn't born to wealth or privilege, didn't go to Harvard or Yale or Princeton or anything like that. Didn't have that type of education. He got into journalism. He bought a little newspaper in the 1880s with some friends and he eventually, just for a few hundred bucks, and the Marion Star, which is still in existence today. And he 
eventually bought those friends out after a few years. He owned the Marion Star until he was president and he sold it for over half a million dollars. And that was in 1920 dollars, which would have been millions of dollars today. So he obviously had a pretty good head for newspaper and, and a pretty good head for business. It made him a very, a pretty wealthy guy, lived very well. But he maintained those small town values. He wasn't an uppity guy. He didn't like to be called Senator Harding or even or Mr. President, particularly with his friends. People around town called him Warren, not Mr. Harding or anything like that. And that's the way he wanted it to be. He really exhibited small town America, not the, not the values of the bigger cities. And he uh, got into politics, served a couple of terms in the Ohio State Senate. He was a, a term as Ohio's lieutenant governor. Um, he lost a bid for governorship in 1910, but he won the U.S. Senate seat that he held in 1914. So he was at the end of his first term or his only, what ended up being his only term in the U.S. Senate when he got the nomination for president in 1920, which is a whole interesting story, because if you read a lot of these books on Harding or about the time period, they're going to say that Harding was selected in a smoke-filled room in a, in a hotel room in Chicago by this group of senators who thought he would be very pliable and they would they could lead him and he would do whatever they wanted to do. And I go into some of that in the book about how presidents were nominated in those days. It's an interesting process that has changed over time from the days of Washington and Jefferson until we get to the national conventions and the beginning in the 1830s. And the primaries had begun in the early 1920s, but there was only a handful of primaries and you won very few delegates in those primaries. And people ran for the, in those primaries to demonstrate that they could raise money and they could get votes. And Harding ran in the primaries. Of course, he won the Ohio primaries, so he would, but he lost the rest of them badly. And But he was at the convention. And the problem was you had a couple of leading candidates, and they didn't believe those either one to get the nomination. And the last thing you want is a party, particularly the Republican Party, because the Democrats were in power. The country was in a mess. The Republicans knew they were probably a shoe in election. But the last thing you want is a, is a brokered convention and a bunch of fights that go on for days and days. And so they wanted to try to get somebody that the convention would accept. And, so, yeah, there was meetings and hotel rooms. And I've got some accounts from people who were there with what exactly happened. And and, and Harding, it, it, it's not like they just reached in and said, well, what about Harding? He's a weakling and we can lead him around. Harding was a very well-known Republican. He had been the chairman of the of a past uh, GOP convention. He had given uh, major speeches. He was well-respected in the party. He's, he was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He, he worked alongside Henry Cabot Lodge, stopping the U.S. entry into the League of Nations. So he was very well-known and very popular within the party, and that's what, why they talked uh, about him. Matter of fact, Theodore Roosevelt had planned to run for president in 19, but he died in 1919. And I found some letters between Harding, and apparently Roosevelt was considering Harding as a running mate if he got the nomination in 1920 had he lived. So this is not somebody that was just some obscure guy that they reached and got because he'd do what they say. That's not true at all. As I say, that's the way most nominations were done in those days. And of course, the convention had to select, had to approve whoever the nominee was. And so you did a lot of campaigning at the convention, going to delegates, going to the state delegations to, hey, what about Harding? Would you consider Harding? So 
There's a lot of campaigning, just like you see out on the campaign trail, but it was done inside the convention hall. And that had gone on for decades. So it's not any different than anyone else. They just use it as a, a way to smear Harding. Yeah. Lincoln wasn't exactly uh, nominated in the light of day. Exactly. Exactly. You look at a lot of these guys, particularly in that time period from Lincoln throughout the Gilded Age, and they would say that, and a lot of them did say that. Look, there was a lot of deals cut to get the nomination. A lot of people did a lot of shady things. Um, I think Lincoln had said, they bought and sold me all, all night long. I couldn't even name my own cabinet. In other words, it, all the favors and things that they had promised to get delegations. But, and that's one of the reasons why they continued to bring out the primaries and, and now the primaries are because they were tr- are the way to do it because they were trying to get out of that more corrupt system and let the people of the party pick their own nominees, which is a which is a nice concept, I think. In twenty, Warren Harding wasn't was well known in certain circles, was not a name per se nationally. Is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement. Like I said, he was very well known in the Republican Party and Republican right. circles. Hard to know this before the age of polling, so we really don't exactly. But again, Republicans knew who he was. Like I said, he'd, he'd chair, he'd been the chair of the, I think, the previous convention. Uh, in 1912, he'd given the keynote address at Taft, Robert Taft, excuse me, William Howard Taft for the presidency. Mm-hmm. So he had been, he had, and again, Foreign Relations Committee, when they were beginning debate on the League of Nations to stop it, Henry Cabot Lodge, who chaired the Foreign Relations Committee, gave Harding the opening speech on the Senate floor to stop that U.S. entry into the League of Nations. That's a pretty big plum to hand him the, the lead speech. And a lot. And then, so, so people that were in the know and read newspapers and that kind of thing, and a lot of people would read the speeches and things that were going on a lot more than they do now. Um, nobody does that kind of thing anymore. Of course, we got internet and Twitter and or whatever it's called today and Facebook and that kind of thing. But as far as how he was nationally, there's really no way to know that. But in the election, he won over 60% of the popular vote. So he was obviously seen in a very well light. Because we, but we know that the country was in such a mess and people were really reacting against Woodrow Wilson and the shape the country was in. So probably anybody that won the Republican nomination, probably would have won an overwhelming victory. Although Harding's campaign and the return to normalcy slogan and what he was uh, campaigning on really resonated with the vast majority of the American people. He does win in 1920. He defeats James Cox and Cox's running mate who went on to better things, a man named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You mentioned that Harding became president at a time of distress, both foreign and domestic, economic too. Could you briefly describe the distress, obviously not PhD level, but what was he walking into when he took the oath of office? And that's something I really emphasize in this book and when I talk about Harding is, is putting him in context. Because we came out of World War One at the end of 1918 and people were excited because we thought the war was going to drag at least 1919, if not 1920. We had prepared for that. But, of course, the Germans surrendered much sooner than we thought. And we we were able to get more Americans on the battlefield to help stop uh, the Germans and begin pushing them back. So they didn't really have any choice but surrender. And so people were pretty excited about that. But it didn't take long for that to subside because we'd gone through this, you know, the Spanish flu, the so-called Spanish flu and all that kind of stuff. And we get into 1919, that's when the upheaval started 
started. You, you, there were there were anarchist groups that were setting off bombs. They actually bombed the home of the U.S. Attorney General at the time. They mailed a lot of package bombs around the country. Some of them uh, went off. Some of them did not because of bad postage. But there were labor strikes. And remember, you got Bolshevism. You had the Soviet. You had the Soviet Union emerge in 1917. You got the, the communists in Russia, and of course, you started seeing Bolshevik up in Germany after the war. And so you get labor strikes over here and these bombings. And in the mind of a lot of Americans, that was Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks were here, and there was there were a lot of socialist groups that were starting to have rallies and stuff, and that caused literal fist fights and violence in the street. Again, there were all kind of strikes. Millions of workers had gone out on strike. You had racial violence in the summer of 1919 to the point that the NAACP called it the Red Summer of 19. Dozens of African-Americans lynched country because a lot of them had migrated from the south into the north and they were not accepted up there. And so a lot of this violence was not in the deep south, but in there were some, but a lot of it was in other parts of the country. So that was a problem. And of course, in January 1920, the economy goes into a depression throughout 1920, what's called the forgotten depression in American history. And unemployment goes up to anywhere from 15 to 19. You got about 15, 16 percent inflation and just a really a bad time. Taxes had gone through the roof. Spending had gone through the roof. And so. There were problems all over the country. Again, that's why one of Woodrow Wilson's guys said this country is in a mess. And people saw that and people were ready for that return to normalcy that Harding promised when he came into office. And that's exactly what he he did. You mentioned earlier about the League of Nations. It was the crown jewel or maybe maybe say it this way. It was Woodrow Wilson's crown jewel of the Versailles Peace Treaty that ended World War One. What were Harding's stance on the treaty, and what was his overall sort of philosophy when it comes to foreign affairs? Because I definitely want to ask you about the Washington Naval Conference. Yeah, he was against the League of Nations, not totally, and a lot of Republicans that ended up voting against it because. U.S. entry into the League of Nations was voted on the, the whole Treaty of Versailles because the League of Nations was included in that treaty. And a lot of people during the Paris Peace Conference had tried to get Wilson to separate the two. Let's do a, the treaty, the peace treaty, and then we will do the League of Nations in, a, in something separate. And Wilson wouldn't have it. He insisted that it all be together. And, of course, when he be back, the objection was to the League of Nations is that there was a provision in if a member nation is attacked from uh, an aggressive matter, they're attacked, then it's, an, it's, it's considered an attack on all member nations. So we would be pledged to go to war without a congressional vote. And that, that upset a lot of people in Congress because they said, wait, war-making authority is in Congress. We, we declare war. We decide when the country goes to war, not the League of Nations. And that's something that they wanted changed or at least some sort of an explanation or to put some provision in there that we're not going to war without a congressional. Woodrow Wilson wouldn't have it. And so that was a real objection there. If he had compromised on that, we might would have ratified the treaty and joined the League of Nations, but we did not. And people say that was a mistake and maybe that caused problems later on, World War II and that kind of thing. And I don't know if you could say that. The League of Nations didn't have a lot of teeth. There was not a whole lot they could do. 
When Japan started their rampage in the 1930s, there was the League of Nations condemned them for their invasion of Manchuria and, and later China proper. But Japan's their solution to that was to simply leave the League of Nations to walk out. They just said, we're no longer a member, so y'all do whatever you want. It was nothing anybody could do to really stop them. So Harding kept that same philosophy. Now, he'd supported the war. He'd voted to, to declare war on Germany, like most every senator did. But he was a non-interventionist. He didn't want to see that happen again. He did not want to see another European war get us entangled in that. His foreign policy throughout his presidency was to begin to untangle us from the concerns of Europe and the rest of the world. We get a, an agreement to formally end the war because we hadn't ratified the treaty. So the, so hostilities were actually still ongoing mm-hmm. with us in Germany. So we get an agreement to bring the war to an end. He withdrew our troops from the Rhineland. We had troops patrolling the Rhineland region between France and Germany. He began the process of withdrawing troops from the Caribbean. We had a lot of troops down there, and we'd occupied the whole island of Cuba. And part of that was because we didn't want the Germans to seize any of that for submarine bases and that kind of thing. But Wilson had really poisoned relations with Mexico and a lot of countries in Latin America, and, and Harding went to work particularly with Mexico, because we had several different diplomatic relations with them. We had we were not we were no longer had a diplomatic relationship with Mexico. So he began to reach out to the president of Mexico and repaired those relations. And, and soon after uh, Harding died, those diplomatic relations were were restored between the United States and Mexico. And the Mexican president was very thankful of Harding. He announced that because he hated Wilson because of the Pancho Villa raids and all that kind of stuff. And we had been down in Mexico and called Wilson the, the most terrible enemy of Mexico. But he hailed Harding's election as a day of deliverance. And they exchanged a lot of really warm personal letters that I've got in the book. And so Harding did a lot of good. And that just I think that's owing to his personality. He just had that type of personality. He's a very personable guy. Very likable guy, sit down and talk to anybody. He was not a haughty, aristocratic, intellectual guy like Woodrow Wilson, who tended to to rub people the wrong way. Harding uh, liked to get along with everybody. And that, that that's the way he ran his foreign policy. And it was very successful. And I would love to have seen what, what could have happened in, in, in eight years in office. I think there would have been a lot uh, of good things that would have happened. Let's talk about the Washington Naval Conference for just a minute. It really was. As good a faith effort to slow the growth and destructive power of warfare as anything up until its time. And the fact that Harding was president of it, was president when it happened, really, I think it comes out in your book that the conference itself, he would never claim credit for it. But at the same time, is it fair to say that at least from the American side in the approach that the conference, the foundation of the conference, found its birth in Harding's sort of philosophy about war and foreign policy? Absolutely. Yeah, it was actually not his idea. There were others that had come up with it. Uh, uh, Senator Bora from Idaho was one. Uh, of course, Harding's the one that called it and, and got it going. Of course, he had a very good secretary of state, Charles Evans Hughes. And um, Hughes was a very able man, a very good secretary of state. And Harding was a the type of president who didn't micromanage and have his hands all over everything. He appointed people to office and he, he was very good at delegating authority and letting Hughes, for example, run the State Department in foreign policies. But the conference was called Harding gave the opening address, but then he pretty much let Hughes 
handle the conference. And it, it lasted for several months. And you have to really put that in context as well. Look at the war that had just been fought, uh, World War One, the Great War, they called it, which had killed 17 million people. Hadn't seen anything like that, particularly in Europe. The, the wars before that were just small affairs that lasted a few weeks. And that's what they thought World War One would be. But it, of course, ended up being this catastrophic conflict. And they didn't want to see that again. And the naval weapons, that, those were the most feared weapons of the day. This is you no know, event of air power. We started seeing a little bit of that in the war, but not to the degree we'd see it later. But And, of course, the naval race between Britain and Germany was seen as a, re- a reason for the outbreak of hostility. So they thought we could limit those weapons. And this was the first disarmament conference the United States had ever participated in. There's really been nothing like that up until that point on a worldwide. And throughout the conference, they did that. They limited naval arsenals. Um, our, ours, we had to scrap a number of ships uh, to get under the, the, the limit. The British did, uh, the French, the Japanese did uh, as well. But that's the big story of the Washington Naval Conference, sometimes called the Washington Disarmament Conference. But there are other stories as well that came out of it that most people don't realize. They they banned poison gas uh, on the battlefield, which I think was a good thing. Uh, nobody wanted to see that again. And, of course, there were some treaties struck, particularly in the Pacific, between um, Japan and the great powers and, and people who had an interest in um, China and, and, the, and the Pacific. And one diplomatic historian said those treaties kept the peace in the Pacific for at least a decade. And of course, Japan ended up breaking those treaties when, when they got started in the 1930s, but it certainly pushed it back a number of years. And it would have been nice to see those treaties carried forward. But that conference accomplished a lot, and nobody seems to want to give Harding any credit at all for it. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. It's presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is Ryan Walters. He's a history professor. He's an author, and we're discussing his book. Should I call it revisionist? <laughs> the, ja- the Jazz Age President, Defending Warren G. Harding. You called it the Forgotten Depression mm-hmm. of 1920. Is it forgotten because of what happens nine years later? Or perhaps is it forgotten because Harding prevented it from being yeah. a great depression. Yeah, I think both. Yeah, it it didn't last nearly as long. And so that's caused people, particularly people that don't like Harding, to say it really wasn't that bad. He the the solutions that he came up with, and he, he had a great secretary of the Treasury named Andrew Mellon. And, and and let's not forget Calvin Coolidge was a big part of the administration as well. He brought Calvin Coolidge more into the affairs of the executive branch. And before vice presidents were didn't have anything to do. They were shunned. And Harding was the first really to, to begin transforming the vice presidency into its modern role because Coolidge was brought into the decision making. And so when Coolidge took over as president in, in August of 1923, 
he was ready to go. I mean, everything that was going on, he hadn't. So Coolidge was a big part of that as well. He had Herbert Hoover at Commerce. And they tackled the Depression in a, in a much different fashion than Franklin Roosevelt, or even Hoover himself did in 1929 and into the 1930s. And that was using what they used to call laissez-faire approach, a conservative approach to economics, is that um, the government doesn't interfere or intervene in economic downturns. And, of course, you got to look at what happened with Wilson. Wilson had – the government had basically taken over the entire economy in, uh, during the Great War taken over the whole railroad system. They had put in a tremendous amount of taxes. The top rate on the income tax was over 70%. There was an excess profits tax, all kinds of things going on. And the business community labeled it business harassment that they had been dealing with. And so Harding came in and got rid of all of that. They had massive tax cuts, massive cuts in the federal budget. The federal budget was still about $6 billion when Harding came in. He cut it in half to about $3 billion and taxes were reduced and all of those things stopped. And when, of course, when that happened, businesses were raring to go. And you see this boom throughout the 1920s that's really unprecedented. You get an economy that averages 7% growth a year during the 1920s or during the height of the roaring 20s. Four major tax cuts, which we always say that leads to deficits, but didn't because the economy was growing so well and so fast. And, of course, with, with spending tightly controlled, there wasn't any new spending going on. The government, imagine this, the government produced a budget surplus every single year until 1929. Of course, that was the Depression. And think about that. We never do that. We look at trillion, $2 trillion deficits every year. They had budget surpluses every year. Down a third of the national debt, Harding and Coolidge did throughout the 1920s. They paid a third of the debt off in those eight years. Uh, that's pretty remarkable. I'm going to go into more of it, but that, that was a remarkable economic turnaround. And so it didn't last very long. And a lot of economists have said that the reason it didn't is because the government took their hands off and let the economy grow and let people do their thing, let producers produce. And you get this just massive <clears throat> expansion of the economy, particularly in manufacturing, car manufacturing and other things that are just and that was really the basis of our industrial might that, that won World War II. You mentioned, uh, we talked before we started recording how I just finished the Timothy Egan book, A Fever in the Heartland, which is superb. And Mr. Egan's going to come on the podcast at a future date. But the 1920s, you mentioned the great migration of African-Americans from South to the North. Mm -hmm. I guess putting 1619 to 1865 aside, is it fair to say, and I'd like for you to tell me I'm wrong, and then describe Warren Harding's role, attitude, is it fair to say that the 1920s are the worst decade in race relations in American history? I'd love to be able to tell you wrong, but I don't think that we can really do that. John Hope Franklin, who was an African-American historian, probably the greatest uh, of those scholars, uh, he said it was the worst racial strife during that time period in the country's history. And he wrote that much later. <clears throat> um, it was awful. And that was something that Harding wanted to try to do something about. And this is something he doesn't get any credit for. The social upheavals in the country he wanted to heal. 
particularly race relations. And this is what really uh, aggravates me is that historians won't even give him credit for this because presidents, even though tired of the federal government, hadn't really done anything in terms of race relations. Woodrow Wilson certainly had done nothing. Woodrow Wilson. Worse than nothing. He did worse than nothing. Progress that had been made, and particularly in the federal government, Woodrow Wilson undid every bit of that when he became president. They, he resegregated down the federal government, but Washington, D.C., the city itself. So we know about Woodrow Wilson's racial views. And Harding comes in, and particularly after 1919, and, and Woodrow Wilson did nothing about 1919 at all. The violence and the upheaval and the lynchings, and it was just downright horrible. I describe a lot of it in the book. Harding came along and said, this is wrong. And, and he called for a federal anti-lynching law. He couldn't get it passed because of the South's power, particularly in the U.S. Senate. But he stood out and called for that, called for civil rights and equal rights for African-Americans. And he went to Birmingham, Alabama. Now, think about this. And this has gotten a lot more. There's been a lot more people who have wrote about this speech in recent years and have given Carding credit for it. And that's his Birmingham speech. I mean. And think about it, going to the heart of the old Confederacy, Birmingham, Alabama, heart of Dixie, speak to a segregated audience and say, you know, black Americans equal rights in the country. They're equal citizens with everybody else. Now, you talk about a courageous act. No president had done anything like that, particularly a Democrat wouldn't have dared go into the South. Woodrow Wilson, he didn't believe it. FDR might have believed it, but he didn't dare do it. He never stood up and said anything about it. And remember, Harding had to the South. Harding won the state of Tennessee. Right. He was the first Republican to win a Southern state since Reconstruction. And he picked up votes throughout the South, but he went into the South and said, it's time to start treating black Americans. That's a very courageous thing to do. And what else could he have done? I mean, he served less than 900 days in office. It'd been nice to see if he could have got some of these things passed. But here's a guy who stood up and said, this is this is wrong. We need to do better. And why does he not get credit for it? How did he forget Coolidge? Because that's not the the point of this interview or your book with a focus, I should say. How did Harding react to the the reemergence of the Klan? He didn't like, well, he didn't like the Klan. I really didn't talk much about the Klan because the Klan did reemerge, particularly throughout the 20s, particularly later on. Uh, and the strongest state was Indiana. There was a lot of Klan activity. In we have, we've had three Klan uprisings in American history. Reconstruction, the 1920s, of course, the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. But the 1920s, that was more of a northern phenomenon. As you say, a right. lot more blacks were moving from the south into the north. How could you blame them? And a lot of them said, we might can do better up there. And of course, they found out they were not received up there either. Because you know, a lot of these cities now... Detroit, Milwaukee, and all that have a pretty large African-American populations. In those days, they might have had maybe 1% or 2% of black citizenry living there. So there was a strong reaction when this migration began. And of course, it led to a lot of those types of things. And not just the official Klan, but just people out lynching people. And that happened. There was an awful one in Omaha, Nebraska, and it was there was awful racial rioting for days in Chicago. And it was all because the black boy was swimming on a beach, Lake Michigan Beach, that whites had said was whites only. And he swam over there and they pelted the poor kid with rocks until he drowned. 
And that ended up with days of rioting. I think 38 people got killed in the rioting. So it was just awful. So Harding spoke out against that completely. And, and let me say this, too. There's a rumor out there, and I've had people email me and ask me this specifically. Was Harding a <laughs> member of the Ku Klux Klan? No, he was not a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I don't know where that trash came from. Harding, when he there was- There are also rumors that Harding was black or had black blood in him in the, he in was, the he was eugenics term. He was subjected to that abuse in Ohio. He was called the N-word as a little kid. As a matter of fact, when he was an adult, his father-in-law used to call him that. And of course, they've done DNA and found out he didn't have any, but uh, it was rumored that the Harding family had black blood. And even in a place like Ohio, the bigotry, so this is not, he was not from Mississippi or Alabama, he's from Ohio, and people there still reacted to that. Harding had a little bit of a, he could sympathize with blacks because of that. He had a little better understanding of some of the things that they were going through because of the way he had been treated. He didn't think that was right. Harding was a guy and he had black delegations that came and visited him at his house during the campaign and he accepted them. He he met with them. He was a guy that liked everybody and he didn't he didn't discriminate uh, against anybody. He had a real good heart. Presidents uh, even before their presidents and in some cases after their inauguration Historically, have had a certain, to, to quote Judge Smales from Caddyshack, a certain zest for living. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson and Grover Cleveland come to mind. But one of the things that in in your book and then in the other reading I've done to prepare for the podcast, President Harding's reputation as a ladies' man, as a philanderer, for lack of a better term. How has that eaten away at his reputation? Because today, it's not looked at the same, whether it's John F. Kennedy or Bill Clinton or some of the things that Donald Trump said. But back then, it was a whole nother set. And we don't want to be teleological here, but there's a whole different set of quote unquote values. How did, how widespread, that's the right term, and frequent was Harding's uh, adventures? And do you think it's fair or unfair to, to use that against him? Yeah, you make a good point. One of the things in those days, and it's really it was really not really until probably Watergate that things changed. Presidents and people like that had their fun, if you want to call it that. And it was not widely reported in the press. Press always believed that somebody's personal life, as long as it didn't interfere with their official duties, that was really off limits. That's one of the reasons it was not reported on, on on Jack Kennedy and how many women did he see, according to the reports. He liked to he had some different ones every week. But Harding did have two affairs in his life that we know about. Uh, just two. This whole idea that he's uh, that he was uh, with everybody and and that kind of thing. He had two affairs. And now, as far as what his marriage life was like. I don't get into a lot of that in the book. Harding did say one time about his wife, Florence. They didn't have any children together. She had a, a son in a previous relationship, a common-law marriage. And, of course, before she married Harding, they didn't have any children together. And why that's the case, I'm not really sure. I know at one point Harding said of her, he said, he, she gives me hell every day. So I don't think that their their life, their Life was probably all that great, but they were more like partners. And Florence Harding had a lot to do with the success of the Marion Star. She was she did a lot of work there, and she can get a lot of credit to the financial success of the newspaper. 
So they saw themselves more as partners, maybe like the Clintons. But Harding did have a couple of affairs. Now, none when he was president. And that's the point I want to make. When you read books on Harding by people that don't like him, these anti-Harding books, you get the same type thing. And I've seen it in book after book. He had all of these women in the White House. And he and Nan Britton was one of the was the young girl he had an affair with when he was a senator that that produced a daughter and that Nan Britton had always said was Harding's. And Harding denied it. And most everybody else denied it. As a matter of fact, Nan Britton read, wrote a book about it called The President's Daughter. And she couldn't get it published because none of the major publishers would touch it. She had to self-publish it. Of course, we know now through DNA that, that was she was correct. But the idea that Nan Britton and all these other women were coming to the White House and, and they would get in a closet off the Oval Office and do their thing and all that kind of stuff. That is absolutely one. Not only is it a myth, it's just bald face lies. It comes out of political attacks and things of that nature. And I use three primary sources from people that worked in the White House at the time, including a Secret Service agent. No women came in the White House at any time to see President Harding ever. And so that's what I was talking about earlier when these historians ignore solid primary sources that that, that take away from their narrative. The, the narrative is that Harding was a womanizer. So these sources that are sitting there, the White House doorkeeper and all these other Secret Service people who said no women ever came to the White House. Uh, one of them wrote in his memoir, he had never heard of Nan Britton at all. He said, I never heard of this person until she came out with her book mm. in 1927. He said, so she didn't come in there. Nobody came in there. The head Secret Service agent said he was actually a Woodrow Wilson guy. He really liked Woodrow Wilson and wasn't particularly a fan of Harding, but he said a lot of good things in his book about Harding. And he said that we had him under constant surveillance and he did not fool around with any women. And he says in the book, and his memoir, he said, the worst thing I saw Harding do was play a little poker with his friends and mildly curse at a golf ball. He said, that's all. That's the worst thing I saw him do. So those are good, solid sources that disprove these myths and lies that there were all these women and they were in closets and all that kind of stuff. It's just ridiculous. For better or worse, we could spend an entire podcast on the quote unquote scandals associated with Warren Harding. And we have just a few minutes left with Brian Walters. We're discussing his book, The Jazz Age President. It's a wonderful account of Warren Harding's short time in the presidency. Whether it's Teapot Dome, which is probably the most, the best well-known, Justice Department, Veterans Bureau, so on and so forth. Which of the these scandals has done the greatest damage to Harding's reputation. Probably and, Teapot Dome. And oh, that's what I was going to say, but I'll let you finish here in just one second. Let me ask a, a corollary to this. And which of these scandals do you think is most unfairly affected Harding's reputation? <laughs> Besides all of them, I would say. Uh, <laughs> you like how I set you up, up for that one? Yeah. <laughs> if Teapot Dome didn't break until Harding was dead. And Harding couldn't defend himself. So I, I, I've been a little bit defensive about that one. Harding did not benefit from any of these scandals and didn't know about any of them. When you look at the one in the Justice Department, for example, Harry Doherty, the, the, the general, he had a right-hand man named Jesse Smith, and they were involved in selling government favors. And Harding didn't know anything about that. 
and Jesse Smith and his and Attorney General Doherty, they had a Doherty had a rented house in Washington on Eighth Street, and people said that Harding went there a lot to eat and to, they have some gatherings and things, and that's true. Harding and, Flo- and uh, Florence Harding, the first lady, went there on a number of occasions because Doherty and Harding were friends. But that's not where the shenanigans took place. And so what they don't tell you is that Doherty had a secret house that he rented, the little greenhouse on K Street, they call it. And again, in uh, the Secret Service agent's memoirs, he said Warren Harding never went to that house. And that was where all of the, the deals and all were struck in this secret house on K Street. Again, it's just more of those kind of things that are used to smear them. This Ohio gang idea that all these people from Ohio, he had brought them all and they looted the treasury. Doherty and Jesse Smith were from Ohio, but nobody else was. A teapot Dome was the shenanigan of Albert Fall. Albert Fall was a senator from New, New Mexico. He was not a, from Ohio, nor was Charles Forbes of the Veterans Bureau. Uh, this idea there's an Ohio gang looting the treasury and doing all of these things is preposterous. And those are some more myths that I, I dealt with in the book. And again, Harding didn't benefit from any of these. In the two scandals that he had found out about Veterans Bureau and the Justice Department, he did something about them. Charles Forbes was fired. Charles Forbes was prosecuted and went to prison. First cabinet? No, Albert Fall is the first former cabinet member to be sent to prison. He went to prison too. Jesse Smith committed suicide before he was arrested. So the point is Harding was doing something about these scandals. And of course, he couldn't do anything about Teapot Dome because he passed away. He died. Right. So he was, I think when you look at what he was doing, he was trying to clean up the mess. And he was, the man was really brokenhearted that his friends, people he trusted, pointed to office had betrayed him like that he really truly felt betrayal as he should have what's his what's his famous quote it's one that's repeated often about his friends <laughs> yeah exactly uh, yeah it's not he said he's not my enemies i have to worry about it's my friends my blankety brink friends that keep me walking the floors at night <laughs> And that's true. And these and these are examples of that. And obviously, he's not the only president to appoint friends or appoint people who he thinks will do a good job, and they turn out to be crooks. The list goes. Up. Speaking of another podcast, that'd have to be a multi-parter. Harding dies under what the time were, and you, you just talk about this in your book. You mentioned it like there was supposed to be all this nefarious activity around his death. And all this scandal, and when I read your when I read your book, I really felt like the truth had come out. He was just in bad health, under a tremendous strain, a lot of stress. He died, I think, is it August of twenty three? Yep, August the second, nineteen twenty. We just passed the hundred year mark of that. And we had he had pneumonia earlier in the year. So he was a 50-some-year-old man who smoked, who drank, who had pneumonia, was under a lot of stress in the presidency, as you said, his friends. It wasn't like his marriage was rainbows. Is it surprising when you do the research, when you get to the part where he dies, do you go, I I can't get it? He just about had enough. Yeah, and his wife had been very sick about a year before, and they they didn't think she was going to make it. So he was under stress from that as well. And his wife, Florence, did not want him to run for president. She even said when he was, you know, got the nomination and was probably going to be elected, she even told a friend, she said, I don't think he'll survive one term. And because of his heart, he had a bad heart. And 
and that kind of thing. Of course, his earlier lifestyle contributed to that. Yeah, and, and a lot of people b- believe, and I talk about this in a book, and it, even people that didn't really particularly like him, Alice uh, Roosevelt Longworth, <laughs> and people like that wrote that they thought he, they thought his the betrayal of his friends had contributed to him that he died of a broken heart. She said that even Calvin Coolidge wrote it in his memoirs that he thought was a great deal to do with it. Harding was really heartbroken when he found out about Teapot Dome on his voyage of understanding out west. They said his attitude and really his countenance changed when he found out about that on the trip. He was really not the same. Do you do you agree so, with them? Do you agree? Yeah. Do you agree with your friend Alice? Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like Hardy. She called him a slob, but uh, she moved in Republican circles. But And she did de- defend him some. There was a rumor that came out that Florence had poisoned him because of his affairs. Right. She reacted strongly against that. But I think there's something to that. Knowing Harding as much as I feel like I know him, the type of man he was, the personality he had, he very trusting uh, person. I, I think he did feel betrayed and he, he'd been stabbed in the back. And I think it probably contributed to it when you realize that he probably had a mild heart attack and then he went to San Francisco and then had either another mild, another heart attack or either a stroke, which was reported in the newspapers that you just finished the man off. Alice, Alice Roosevelt, one of the great quotes of all time. If you don't have anything nice to say, come sit next to me. <laughs> that, that's her. That's her. <laughs> Other authors have taken on the the task of detailing and chronicling Harding's life, both before the presidency and as president. What has been the general feeling as we've moved through the decades? Did it start as this guy is bad and now we get to your book published here in this century that says, no, that's not quite right. How is the scholarship and historiography changing? I hope for the better. I wasn't really the first to do it. There were other that had written favorably of Hardy. The only real uh, book, single book that dealt with it was John Dean's biography in 2004, right. part of the Arthur Schlesinger President series. But I wanted to do a, a deeper dive into that. That, that book's kind of small and 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 he he spends a lot of time before the presidency does a good job, but I wanted to get deeper into it, deeper into the policy, deeper into exactly what he did again, putting him in the proper context. And so I hope, as I like to you know tell people, I said, I hope I can bump him up from 37th and, and maybe somebody else can come along and bump him up because they've got a Harding presidential library now in, in Marion, Ohio, and, and they restored his home. And last I heard, I talked to the director here a while, uh, last November. I went to and spoke at the President Harding Society in Cincinnati. And she told me they're expanding that. And not only expanding that, they are digitizing all of Harding's letters and papers. So you're going to be able to go online and see all of this stuff. So I'm hoping, mm-hmm. of course, my the wheel started turning in my mind about what else I could do. But hopefully some people will, will take advantage of that. And expound on what I've done and go further. Maybe if somebody can do a, a more complete biography. Because mine was more of a defense and more of a political book. Somebody might want to do a, a more grounded biography. But I'm, I'm hoping that's the case. And we'll, we'll just have to see what the future holds. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Professor Walters, are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> what was your first? First job. 
my first job in life, my grandfather was a real estate developer and had shopping centers and he owned several grocery stores and I learned to bag groceries very early. And so, Number two, what was your first concert? First was in Mississippi. I went to see the country group Alabama when I was just a little kid. These get harder as they go along, especially for historians. <laughs> if you could suggest any book for someone to read, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Besides mine? Besides yours. Yours are a given. One of the books that I like to talk about is I'm doing, a, I'm working on a political history of the Vietnam War now. And a lot of people talk about Vietnam. There's one of my favorite books in the Vietnam War is called Fire in the Lake by Francis Fitzgerald about how we didn't prevail in Vietnam because we didn't understand the culture and heritage and history of the Vietnamese people. And as someone who's been to Vietnam five times, I, I wholeheartedly concur with that. I'm reading a book right now about Lyndon Johnson in 1968. I just got to the Tet Offensive. It's, I can remember the Vietnam War barely. 19, I remember the fall of Saigon, but I need to know more about it. So when you get that book, going make sure that you reach out i'd love to have you back on no i'm working i'm working away when i get through my ed white biography so (laughs) (laughs) number four if you could witness any event in history witness any event in history be there in person as it happens which event would you choose i'm a i'm a jefferson fan gosh that's that's like asking somebody what's your favorite kid which one would you get rid of (laughs) (laughs) i told you it gets worse (laughs) Oh, gosh, I'd love to be at Independence Hall during the signing of the Declaration of Independence. That's one thing I would love to see. What about Jefferson sulking as everyone edited his draft of the Declaration of Independence? Yeah, that'd be that's one of the things I was thinking about. John Adams series. He's sitting over there in the chair as they're like marking through the stuff. (laughs) Somebody said one time he was like being cut with a knife every time they strike something out. I think that every time I write an op-ed for a client or a speech and it comes back and it's significantly oh, different. I'm like, well, I guess if Thomas can deal with it, so can I. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Oh, my God. Who would I choose today? Living today. Oh, man, you're... Your students don't care how tough my questions are. Man, you got some tough ones. You got some absolute tough ones. Because I got this shirt I wear to class sometime. It's a T-shirt. And I said, it says, um, history buff, um, I would like you better if you were dead. <laughs> That's the thing. A big part of my Vietnam research is, in, and I've actually been, I've poured through a lot of Pat Buchanan's stuff. I'd probably sit down with Pat Buchanan. I'm, I'm going to try to get a hold of Pat Buchanan and see if I can sit down with him about what was really going on in the Nixon White House from Vietnam. Um, His two so, books on Nixon, The Greatest Comeback, yeah. and Nixon's White House Wars are absolutely amazing. They're great history. Whatever yeah. you think of, about Buchanan's political views, which isn't important at this moment, his writing style is so enthralling. Yeah, I, I would recommend those books, those two to anybody. I've read them, and they're sitting right here. And somebody just published a book just recently on all the mem- all the memos he wrote i hadn't bought it yet but it's on amazon it's all the memos he wrote as when he worked uh, as an aide to nixon in the white house he wrote a lot of memos right. so i'm going to order that so that ought to be some really interesting reading 
You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister, born during the Woodrow Wilson administration. Our guest today is Ryan Walters. He's an historian. He teaches American history, and he has written a book, The Jazz Age President, Defending Warren G. Harding. If you think that he defended the indefensible, then read the book, because that's not what I got out of it. What I got out of it is a man who was unfairly maligned, both by history and his contemporaries. It's a terrific book. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com.